If you're in Kidmo, you can head on back. We're glad that you're here this morning, and if you're Kidmo leader, if you'll go with them, that would be great. All right, we're going to get started here in uh, just a second, and we're going to continue in our series in Philippians. If you have a phone or a tablet, you can follow along on version. If you, I'm not on? Pack's on. Can you hear me? I'm, it's coming, it's coming. There we go. All right. Now can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Um, all right. Well, we're glad you're here. So if, if you're in Kidmo, you can go if you didn't hear that. <laughs> they could. They can't wait to get out of here. Um, before we get started, just a, a few things I want to share with you. Uh, number one, for those of you that were planning to come to the block party tonight, uh, we are postponing it. And I don't have another date for you yet. So we'll get that out whenever we have it. Uh, we're anticipating rain, but, but now it may not rain this afternoon, but we've already called everything off. So uh, that is postponed. And uh, also for you guys that wanted to go on the men's trip, uh, we just don't know what to do with the weather. It just We haven't had rain all summer long until the weekend where we have outdoor events. But that's the way things sometimes go. Uh, but we'll let you know when that's going to be rescheduled as well. Uh, we've got a lot coming up. Just schools back in. We're excited about that. Parents are rejoicing all over Hamilton County, and uh, kids are in mourning. But uh, with with that comes lots of activities, not just with your family, but activities uh, that we have here at the church. And so we've already heard about several of those. Uh, we'll just we'll we'll try to keep everything scheduled where we don't keep you so busy that you have something with us every weekend. But we do want to come together and spend time together as a community and as a family. Let me also ask you to be praying about a couple of things this week. Uh, many of you already know that uh, that the Rogers family need to be in prayer for them. Kim's mother passed away last weekend, and uh, be in prayer for them because her grandfather, uh, the father of her dad. Um, he is ill as well. And so just be praying for them as they're going through this. Some of you asked about a memorial service. That's going to be next Saturday at 10. If you'd like more information about that, you can just come and ask me about that. Or you can ask Kim uh, or Kurt or, or uh, any, however, just come ask and we'll give you that information if you would like to have it. Um, also be praying for Wendy. Wendy's due on Tuesday. And she's, I think, ready. Uh, I think she's done with being pregnant. Um, so be in prayer for Richard and for Wendy. We're glad Richard's here today. I know his mind and her mind are in a million other places rather than being here. So we appreciate them being here this morning. Uh, but we'll be praying that that will all go well. All right. We're going to continue in our series on Philippians. Now, am I a little loud now? A little bit? We turn me down just a little bit. I mean, I can hear myself bouncing back at me. I know that uh, sometimes some of you need it, though, because I see your head start to do this, you know, so it helps keep you awake. We've been talking about the book of Philippians, and we've been trying to do a couple of different things, not only handle the letter that Paul and Timothy wrote to the church at Philippi. We've also tried to bring in some good study tools that you can use in your own basic study of Scripture, because truthfully... The greatest things you will ever learn in Scripture will not come from anyone speaking on a stage. It will not come from a DVD, a CD, or someone on the TV. Although that all rhymed. I didn't even plan for that. That was awesome. But where it will come from is your own personal study. And the reason that is is because God has an active relationship with his followers. 
It's not passive. It's not the kind of relationship where we just, we kind of sign up for heaven and then we wait till it gets here. Instead, he has an active relationship with us every single day. So as you're going through your day and you're problem solving and inevitably bad things happen and you're trying to make the best decisions through those bad things or sometimes good things happen and you don't know how to choose between good options, God is active in that relationship pushing us and driving us and encouraging us to his plan for our lives, not only in making those decisions, but just in everyday character and the way that we live. And so in your own personal study, that is often where God will begin to speak directly into your life about what's going on with you. Now, what we hope to do on Sunday mornings, and sometimes we do a better job than others, we hope that whatever we share with you speaks to where you are. And so we will cover a lot of general things and give you some kind of high altitude concepts for you to then apply to the specific instances in your life. But it's in your personal study that you will truly hear God speak to you about what's going on right now that's most relevant to you. That's why the greatest things you will learn will come in your own personal study. But we recognize that when you're a new Christian or if you've not ever been trained how to study Scripture, sometimes you don't really know where to go to, what to do with the text in front of you. And so we hope that this series, and we're going to have others in the future like this, this kind of digging deeper study, where we help you go through some basic steps of how to pull out deeper meaning from Scripture. One of the biggest problems that we have, as we've discussed so far in the last few weeks, is that everything that was written in Scripture was written to a specific group of people in a specific culture and a specific time that none of us live in. We are not those people. We didn't live in that time. Our culture is very different from their culture, and so we have to kind of pull out from the text what God is saying to them, and how do we apply that to us? And that can feel a little overwhelming if you're new to deeper Bible study. And so I hope that you've gained some of those tools. If you've been writing down notes, the six basic questions that we have been using are excellent tools to help you look at the text and understand what was happening there and then place ourselves not in that context, but take that principle and bring it into ours. And so those six basic questions, as we have shared them so far, we're going to go over them again today. We only have one more week after this week in Philippians, and then we're going to be done with this particular letter. The first basic question is, who's writing the letter? It's important to know who wrote it. The person who wrote it comes from a specific background. They have a a history. They have a certain personality. They have a, a reason for writing this. And knowing who wrote it is our first clue as to why they wrote it. So who is writing this letter? I've already told you. You should know. Who is it? Paul. And if we go and we are literal based on what we read in the opening of this letter, Paul with Timothy, though we believe Paul actually wrote it. Timothy had a strong relationship with the church in Philippi. And so he said, Paul, Timothy and I are both writing this to you. We are in agreement about what I'm saying to you. The second one is, who are they writing to? And who is that? The church in Philippi. So it's a specific place. You can go and research Philippi. If you're curious, a lot of the things that people don't think to do is to Google different things that they're searching now. Don't Google application for Scripture. That is something that you need to go through in prayer. And the things that will come up if you Google, how do I apply this Scripture, will be insane the number of things that you'll be bombarded with. 
But you can learn a little bit about Philippi. It's history. You can see where it is on the map. Do people still live there? What was happening there? And a lot of the veil of mystery that falls over a lot of Scripture that we read will fall away once we begin to dig down into what are some of the specific details about who this is being written to. So we know who it's saying, who Paul is saying this to. It's the church at Philippi. We know what we've studied so far is that he, he loved this church. He helped start this church. We know that Paul's in prison, likely under house arrest, when he wrote this letter. And we know that while he's in prison, he's not just sitting there twiddling his thumbs. He's spreading the gospel wherever he is. And he even goes so far as to say even the highest level guard, the gospel is going through all of those people. So Paul writes all kinds of encouraging things because unlike some of his other letters, the church at Philippi got it. They knew what it was like to not only follow Christ, but they knew what it was like to live it out in the context of community. And the context of community is what we're going to really dig down into this morning and why Paul decided to write this and how important it is today. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Our next basic question is, what is Paul saying? The easiest way to determine what is Paul saying is to do what? Read it. Y'all are learning. You already knew that, but that's the easiest way to determine what is he saying is simply to read the text. So we're going to read chapters 4. Verses 2 through 9. That's going to be our text for today. It says, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Sanctity to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. We don't know who that is. I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, you'll remember last week we had some really fun analogies to work with where Paul is describing the life of a follower of Jesus as someone who goes into training to win a specific prize. There was something that he pressed towards. And the Olympics, while we're in that now, and tonight we're probably a lot of us will be watching the closing ceremonies. He was also familiar with the Olympic Games. And so some of his imagery, not just in this letter, but in other letters, has to do with an athlete going into training in order to win a prize for which Paul says, the prize is to know Christ and to be like him. That is the prize that every Christian is working for. And what we also hear in that last verse is he's saying, all that I have just said to you in this letter, practice these things. Because without practice, there's no progress. And so let's look at this and see exactly what Paul is saying. Our 
Next basic question after what is he saying, which a lot of us, let's be honest, we stop with what is being said. We just read through the text and we take it. And if something jumps out to us, great. And if not, okay, we move on with our day. The next basic question is, okay, so I know what he just said. So why did he say it? And the way we go about finding out why he said it is to pull in some of the other questions. We've done some research at this point, whether you've used a study Bible or a commentary. We basically asked the questions of what's going on with these people, what's happening in this environment, what's going on in, in this culture, and why is Paul choosing to write to them? We know that overall, Paul is saying, I am so thankful for your care for me while I've been in prison. We know that he wanted to commend to them Epaphroditus, who had been instrumental in caring for him, but he became ill. And he wanted them to know, but he's doing okay, and I'm going to send him back to you. And overall, he wanted to say thank you for what you have done. Chapter 4, verse 2 marks a little bit of a turn, something that we don't see a whole lot of from Paul in this letter, but we do see in many other places, and that is where Paul begins to address some problems. Yet for this problem, he seems to come across as someone who's trying to be helpful, non-judgmental, and not angry. Now, Paul doesn't always come across that way. Sometimes when we read Paul, he is right up in their face. But here we don't see that. And that's going to be important. So when we want to answer the question, why is Paul saying it? We dig a little deeper and we go through these a little slower. And we often have to read what happened before, what happened after, and take some time praying about what this particular verse means. So let's take some time to go through it. It says in verse 2 and 3, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Sanctity to agree in the Lord. What do you think that assumes? They don't. Now, I know that's hard for us to imagine. That there are two people in the church that don't agree. But apparently that's what's going on. He encourages them. He entreats them. And the word entreat literally means to beg or encourage or exhort To ask repeatedly. He's saying, I want you to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, whoever this is, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, if we stop and take a minute and we look at these few verses, we learn a few things about this situation. We know that there are two women that disagree. Again, hard to believe. It did happen back then. (laughs) Two women disagree. Two women that Paul says, I know they are true followers of Jesus. Two women that apparently their disagreement has nothing to do with some kind of doctrinal difference. It has nothing to do with saying some kind of gospel that's not true. It has nothing to do with their theology because every time Paul addresses those things, Paul is very specific This is what they're saying. That's not true. This is what is true. Paul always addresses doctrinal and theological divisions in the church with very specific teaching on what should be taught as true. But we don't see this here. All we see is Paul saying there's a disagreement and I want you to agree. And they've not been able to get through this. Now, keep in mind, Paul is not in services with them. Whenever you come to a church and you're there every Sunday or Wednesday or whenever you're there and you see somebody regularly, you can pick out the people that have issues with each other, can't you? 
They don't talk to each other. They don't sit together. They avoid each other. And if you're friends with both, you likely have seen conflict. That's not the case with Paul. Paul's not been here. It's been enough of a conflict, though, that word reaches Paul. And so Paul has to address it. And what we find is that Paul sees of great importance the need to address division in a community. Now, already Paul has said, you guys get it. He's already said, this is something that is important for all churches to be like this. You have cared for me. You have spread the gospel. You have served in unity. But it shows us a few things. Number one, it shows us that not any church is perfect. Now, I know some of you that comes to a surprise because you thought we were perfect. I don't know which one of you it is, but I'm sure somebody thought that at some point. But no church is perfect. Even the church that Paul, over and above, went to say, you get it. It is possible that believers within the context of a community can both be fully committed to Christ, fully committed to following in the ways of the teachings of Christ, and yet still be at odds with each other. Now, a lot of times we want to attribute that to one person is not really a believer or one person is not really committed to their faith. Paul does not say that. And in fact, in Paul's ministry, women are highly crucial in every step of his ministry. And in this case, he's saying these two women have been crucial into my ministry here in Philippi. And yet for right now, they're at odds with each other. And interestingly enough, some of your, your versions may mention a companion Some of them may mention a yoke fellow. Someone Paul is tasking to walk along with them to address this issue. Paul entreated them, and he entreated them to do what? What does the text say? Agree, not just agree, true, but what? Agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Now, this is where interpreting scripture takes on a very personal feel because you know what it feels like to disagree with somebody you know what it feels like to be at odds with someone you know what it feels like to be in conflict with someone some of you right now are in conflict with someone maybe a friend it may be a family member it may be somebody at work it may be a neighbor it may be somebody you serve with at church You know what it feels like to be at odds with somebody. You know what it feels like when you walk into the room and you don't know they're going to be there. And you see them. You know what it feels like inside. And interestingly enough, even though Paul knows what's going on, Paul knows that there's a problem, Paul never tries to give them the solution to their disagreement. He simply says, agree in the Lord. Now, Paul made a point to do this in this letter. Paul could have skipped over this. He could have made a separate letter. He did write multiple letters to different churches. He could have included that in a different letter, but he wanted to include it now, not because this was something that was going to destroy the church, but it was something that could. Because the strength of the community rests in the unity of the community following Christ. And when division enters into the community, it begins to break down those relationships and it begins to hurt those people. Not only in the church, but in the community around them. Community is part of God's plan for discipleship. God never intended for you to grow as a follower of his 
simply by yourself in a bubble. There are people in the world that have to do that. There are people that they hear the gospel, they're in a part of the world that doesn't have a church, that doesn't have other people, or maybe it does, but they're in fear for their lives, so they keep it quiet, and they try to figure it out for themselves. There are people that have to do that. You are not one of those people. In this place, we have an opportunity to be in community because God always wanted us to live that way. When God created Adam, he saw it was not good. But when Eve came into the picture, it was. He meant for us to be in a relationship with each other. When original sin entered into the world, when Eve ate of the apple and gave it to Adam, and Adam ate or whatever fruit it was, what we see is a division in community. God begins walking in the garden. Adam and Eve are hiding away from him. And God says, where are you? Even though he knew. And we find at that point a break in community that would only be healed through the death of Christ on the cross to bring community back. When we look at the New Testament, we find that the church is often talked about as a community of believers, a community of people, a body made up of different parts, that every single part is needed. And yet you and I live in a culture in which we are encouraged to do this on our own. We don't share our struggles. We don't share our problems. We don't share our heartaches. We don't share our conflict. We keep that in. And by keeping it in, we never resolve it. Because God made us to grow as a community. So I was thinking through what does it mean to be a community. And I know you have been a part of of organizations and churches. I've been a part of organizations of churches where there were people in a group, but the people were not unified. I've been in places where we've argued about things that just didn't matter. We've had petty disagreements that end up breaking relationships. And as a pastor, one thing I learned very early on in ministry is that among Christians, often what happens when there's a disagreement, there's a break in a relationship. For some reason, we have learned that if a person's going to be a friend, we are going to hit it off and we are never going to have a problem. And at the moment that we have a problem, the relationship's over. Think about it. How many of our friends are no longer friends because we had a blow up and we just stopped talking to each other? How many relationships have you seen that they seem happy and and good together and then something happened and there's no forgiveness, there's no understanding, there's no grace and the relationship is over. What we've seen in churches over and over again is this lack of community, this lack of care for each other. What ends up happening is it leads to division and we typically only give each other one, one shot. And if that one shot doesn't make it, and it's over. Paul knew this was the way that humanity deals with its issues. And he knew this was going to happen in the church. And he saw it happening with two people that he loved and that were vitally important to his ministry. And he knew that they had to get past this. It wasn't a major thing. Whatever it was, they needed to get past it. Community reminds us That there is more to life than just ourselves. Our culture tells us the only thing you need to be concerned with is yourself. 
Now, I've got a few friends that we always agree. We always, when we get together, we just agree. We just get along. We don't get mad at each other. We just, things are good and, and we're happy. I have other friends that we disagree. And at times our disagreement gets heated. And then we decide our relationship is more important than our disagreement is. And so we move past the disagreement. I have other relationships in which we have been friends and we have a disagreement. And after a disagreement, we just can't seem to put it past us. And our relationship dissolves. That has never been God's plan for his people. It's never been God's plan for the church. And yet what we see within the church right now is a lot of disunity happening that is destroying churches all around not only our city, our nation, but around the world. Because disunity is exactly what the enemy wants to happen amongst the people of God. That's his goal. Paul knew that was what his goal was. He knew that disunity unravels community and that when the community unravels, several things happen. It hurts the people that are there and it hurts the people that are watching. See, people watch us. And when they look at us and we don't act any different than they do, they ask themselves, why do I need what they have? They're just like me. And yet when we show a different way of dealing with disagreement... What we show them is that there is a deeper way of living life. Disunity is always going to happen. Conflict is always going to happen. But it doesn't have to destroy relationship. Community builds. Community models for others. Community informs how we should live. Community loves. Community consoles when someone is hurting. Community celebrates when something's worthy to be celebrated community troubleshoots when there's a problem and an answer is not evident community is there when they're needed community stays away when they're not but disunity disunity destroys disunity ends relationships disunity stops the message and the spread of the gospel Disunity makes a person believe that they are the center of the world and that person will no longer be a part of their world. Disunity elevates ourselves. Disunity destroys relationships. Disunity also convinces the world that there's nothing valuable in our faith. That we can overcome it. Disunity unravels community. As we read through Scripture, this is where, as you begin to read many different places, once you read something, other things will come to your mind. One of the things I love about Scripture is that you don't see a lot of contradiction. You will sometimes see different perspectives of an event, but you don't see one person saying one thing and another person saying the opposite. Instead, what we see throughout Scripture is a constant thread, a constant truth that continues. For Paul, he wrote about this to many different places, but so did the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about the early church and what was it that brought people into the faith At the very beginning, the roots of the church in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says, Day by day, attending the temple together 
and breaking bread in their homes. They had relationships outside of the church. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Their community was attractive to those outside. Can people look at us and say their relationships are deeper than ours? Their care for each other is deeper than ours. When they're in need, their time to be there is deeper than ours. There's something different about that group of people that makes us want to be a part. Is that the message that the world sees? Not just mean, I don't just mean about journey, but I mean about the church as a whole around the world. Is that what we see? Is that what is demonstrated? In the early church, it was their ability to be in unity around the gospel that caused people to want to be a part. All right, let's move on. The next few verses are going to continue this theme. And this is one of the problems when we read Scripture on a verse-by-verse basis, and then we just stop, we hone in, and we read a couple of verses, and that's all we do that day. Maybe you do that in a devotion. The next few verses could easily be understood to be about something completely different, and yet you would never write a letter that way. You would have a consistent thought that would follow through the letter, right? You wouldn't just break out a bunch of points unless it was a study guide for a test or something like that. Instead... As we read through these letters, Paul has a consistent thought. And so these next few verses are not unique apart from what he has just said, but it continues what he said. So he's encouraging them to agree in the Lord. It means that maybe neither one of them were wrong. Maybe neither one of them were right. But there's a third higher place to say the things of God are more important than the things we disagree about. He moves on in verse 4 and says... Rejoice in the Lord always. Now remember, he's continuing the thought he has just started. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What I find in those few verses, if you will stop and take a few minutes to read through, are some secrets to a life of peace. These secrets to a life of peace are not groundbreaking. They're not a step-by-step formula that once you do all the steps of the formula, you'll find yourself at peace. But instead, it's a way of living life that is different than many people live their lives. There are three primary things that you you can find them yourself in there. The first one is... Rejoice in the Lord. Just rejoice in the Lord. Now, at first glance, for some of us who grew up singing a hymn that sounds just like this, because that's where the hymn came from, we often read these words and we just gloss over because we've heard them so many times. We hear them so many times that eventually we just say, yeah, rejoice in the Lord. I get it. I'm supposed to rejoice in the Lord. But why is he saying this? There's division in the church. There's a problem that they can't, come, they can't come to agreement. He's already said we need a third party to come in and help you guys deal with this. But let me tell, help you how to do that. Number one, rejoice in the Lord, which means find your joy in the right place. Now, I find my joy in many different places. Do you? I would love to say my joy is 100% in the Lord 100% of the time. I would love to say that. The problem is sometimes I enjoy other things. 
And I put my joy in other things. I put my joy in a Saturday morning where I can just sit and do nothing. Does anybody else find joy in that? Some of you are thinking, I find my joy doing that on Sunday morning. I should have done that this morning. But I'm glad you're here. That's not what you should do on Sunday morning. I find joy sometimes in a perfectly cooked hamburger. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, hamburger? I don't want a hamburger. I want a, I want a porterhouse or something. Well, okay, that's good too. Sometimes I find my joy when someone really thinks I've got it together. I like that. Anybody else? I like it when they go, Mark, man, he's got it together. Because I know that's really probably not true. But I like feeling like other people think it's true. There are sometimes I find my joy in being right and knowing someone else is not. Am I going too far? There are times I find my joy in what I have accomplished on my own. I've done with my own hands. I've accomplished under my own energy. There are times I find my joy in knowing I'm better than them. See, the reason Paul starts with rejoice in the Lord is because Paul knows that as humans, we have a tendency to place our joy in places that disrupt, not bring together. And ultimately, the way we deal with division and the way we deal with problems, the way we deal with disunity is we have to get above the fray. We have to get out of the battleground and we have to sometimes get up to the 30,000 foot level and say there is something bigger for us to aspire to than this stuff we find ourselves embroiled in down here on earth. And it is in those times that we truly ask ourselves, where is my joy? Is my joy in the Lord or is my joy in myself or what I can accomplish? Is my joy in knowing that I am nothing before God or is my joy in thinking I'm something better than others? Because in all of humanity, there's the desire to be worshipped above others. That was the sin of Satan. That is the sin of humanity. We should be worshipped. Not God. And so once we do that, that is honestly one of the roots of disunity amongst people. I should be valued among you. You disagree. And therefore, there's conflict. Rejoice in the Lord. A secret to a peaceful community is that we together are rejoicing in God. He is our example He is what we set as the thing that brings us joy. And the wonderful thing about that is that supersedes every circumstance you will ever go through. Our joy is in the Lord. The second one is this. This is what we're not always good at. Be reasonable to others. Be reasonable to others. Now, I've, I've been a pastor now for a while in a few different churches. And I would like to say that in the churches in which I have pastored, we have never had a petty disagreement. I've had people leave the church because the choir robes were the wrong color. Had people leave the church because the hymnals were not the right hymnal or the binding was not. I don't know what the deal is with color. The carpet wasn't the right color. Had disagreement in music style. 
I had one person tell me they were going to leave the church if I didn't wear a tie. We can really argue about petty, petty things. We can be unreasonable. And the word that Paul's using here, the word for, unre- for being reasonable means to be gentle, to be respectful, to recognize the value of another. And so he's encouraging us as a way of living your life, be reasonable. Are we reasonable people? Now, it would be wonderful if we could live our lives without emotion, wouldn't it? Emotion is the, pro- is the thing that gets in the way, it gets in the, mus- the mess and the muck, and it causes us to do things we wouldn't necessarily do because I feel something. I feel defensive. I feel angry. I feel righteous. And it causes me to act in a way that if my mind was operating apart from my emotions, I might not act that way. Paul is saying, be reasonable. And here is the secret to being reasonable amongst others. It is a word none of us like called discipline. Discipline. We all have chosen certain disciplines in our life, ways we're going to live our life, certain creeds that we are going to pattern our behavior after. But often we live our lives in the church without these disciplines. Instead, what we have a tendency to do is we put everything in one pot and we say, I trust that God will save me from my sins. And that's it. And yet what we read over and over in Scripture is that if our faith does not encourage us to live a different life, our faith is not true faith. Instead, we change the way we live That requires discipline amongst people because even though our sins are forgiven, God has not removed our capacity for sin. And so you and I still struggle with that on a daily basis. Be reasonable, be gentle, be respectful. Recognize the value of others. Recognize that you aren't the all in all. And let the value that you show someone else win over the need for you to be celebrated. Be reasonable to others. There are so many things within the church we could move past if we could just be reasonable with each other, if we could be understanding for each other, if we could think through what are they going through, what help do they need? But often the reason we have conflict is because we don't approach it from their perspective, we approach it from ours. thought it was a great quote that uh, President Bush said. It's, he's not, it's not unique to him. It's been said before, former President Bush. When he says, we judge others for their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. Isn't that true? We give ourselves a pass because we know what we really wanted to do, even though that's not what we did. But we never stop to look at it from their perspective. What were they really trying to do, even though that's not what they really did? It's that need for us to judge. It's that that's born in us to want to be self-righteous, for us to realize, I, I'm better than you. Be reasonable to others. And the third thing is focusing on knowing God instead of worrying about this world. He says it like this, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. In other words, raise out of the mess and the muck in the world and recognize that God is there for us to come to. 
Our anxiety is often all the things that we just don't know what the other end of that decision is going to be. We don't know how this event is going to work out, this circumstance, this problem. We don't know what the result is going to be. And so we worry and we're anxious. Maybe you're worried about what's going on at work. Maybe you're worried that you're not going to have a job or you're worried that your paycheck is not going to be able to cover the next stage of life. Maybe you're anxious about knowing what's going to happen with someone you care about. They're taking steps that are not good and you're worried what's going to happen to them. Our anxieties are not always bad, but our anxieties that he's talking about here cause us to focus instead on ourselves and our own issues. He's saying, raise it up. Get up to that higher level and recognize these are the things of God. And everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God comes in in these times. That's part of the secret to dealing with disunity in the church is to live a life that brings peace, which assumes that disunity comes when we are not living lives that are at peace. And I can 100% tell you that is true. When things are going well, you typically don't disagree as much. When things are going bad, we're ready to bite each other's heads off. So how do we deal with disunity? Live lives of peace. How do we live lives of peace? We have three steps right there that are lifestyle choices. Let's move on to verse 8. He continues on finally. He's kind of finishing one thought. This is why we're stopping at these couple of verses. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He's saying it again. If you want peace, this is what you do. Peace encourages unity. What I believe is that the peace of God comes to the community that is focused on the things of God. The peace of God comes to the community who is focused on the things of God. I'm not going to assume that every one of us, every time we come together, are focused on the things of God. Sometimes I'm focused on what just happened in the car on the way over here. Not usually, because usually I'm by myself, so I'm usually pretty okay with what happened in the car, but maybe... Some of you that have the kids with you. I'm not really thinking about the things of God right now. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do to them when we get home. (laughs) Right? Not you all. Your kids are perfect, right? (laughs) So what is a transferable principle? That's the next basic question. So we can kind of see why he's saying it. We can see what he's saying. But what we really want to know is what's the meat for us. And while... While you go through the process of answering the question, why is he saying this? You will pull some of that out as we have just done. There still is that transferable principle to say, this is what Paul was trying to communicate. This is what we can take, even though we live in a different culture, a different time. We don't have these two ladies disagreeing. But this is what we can learn from this. And while I think we can actually pull several, I'm going to sum them up by saying this. When we focus on the things of God and the teachings of Christ together, Together, not a whole bunch of separate people, but when we do this together, we experience peace together and 
The result is we spread the gospel together because the world ultimately, most of it, not all of it, most of it is wanting peace. Most of it wants peace. The most vocal do not, but the rest do. And so when they see a place to attain peace, then they go to that place. We know that peace will not be found in a treaty. Peace will not be found in a circumstance. Peace will not be found apart from anything except being at peace with God, with other believers. That's the only peace that matters in this world. It's the only peace you can have in this world. And it is the peace that Paul is trying to tell them, get away from the disagreements and focus on the peace that we have together in Christ. And with each other, there's peace to be had. The problem, and you know this to be true, the problem is that together includes people, right? It includes people. And people have a tendency to have problems with each other. I put two people in a room, best friends, eventually they're going to have problems with each other. And a lot of times when we look at the church and the reason that Christians have a tendency to have a once and done mentality when it comes to conflict is because we have this unhealthy idea that a true follower of Jesus will never be at odds with us. And yet, if you read Scripture, you can't even find that amongst the disciples. The disciples were at odds with each other at times. We're people. We're screwed up. The desire for us to be the perfect person does not exist. It's not possible. And what it will end up doing is breaking down all of your relationships. We see this right now in a number of ways. We have so many tensions dividing people in the world today. We see that right now with racial tensions. Though I've got to be honest, I I encounter and talk and work with people of different races every day, and I never experience any of the things I see on the news. Never see it. We smile, we laugh, we talk, we are polite to each other, we open the door for each other. But there are some that value disunity. And that's what we see. But the rest of the world, that's not what they experience. But together means we're going to, at times, have problems. We see that in racial tension. We see that in political parties. How many are Democrats? No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. (laughs) How many are Republicans, Libertarians, Green Party? Man, we argue about everything because we're people. And it would be great if that were just those people outside the church. How many people can't stand the political views of a person they're sitting next to in worship? So we let these things divide us. Some of us are getting ready to be divided yet again on a different level because football's about to start. Go Tennessee. (laughs) Jeremy said they're ranked number nine for now. Hopefully they'll stay that high. (laughs) (laughs) But together we also see it in the church. What denomination are you? Worship style. Which Bible version do you use? How long does your pastor preach too long? I mean, that's the standard answer for everybody. We're all united on that too long. But for the rest, we're divided on these things. 
Because people are people, and what we are going to do is we are going to be at odds with each other if we allow ourselves the same thing that says I need to be a part of a denomination to identify with them is the exact same mindset that says I can't be a part of this church because I don't like the color of your hymnals or lack thereof. The exact same problem. We're all broken people before a God who has given us the grace to be restored and to be forgiven. And yet often division happens because we forget the grace we've received and therefore we don't give that grace to other people around us. But yet when we experience the grace of God in a way that is true and is real, we are thankful and we choose to give that to others. I'm not saying, let me me have my little fine print here. This does not mean that we never disagree. It also does not mean that we never call anybody out. See, there are times when we believe that grace means, you know, he's, he's married and he's with three other women at the same time. Let's just not say anything. Unity in the church, you know, all that good stuff. There are times we have to call things out because they are unhealthy. There are times the church has to stand up and say, this is not right. But what do we do to determine what is right? See, when we rely on our own preference, when we rely on our own ability to think things through, when we rely on our own priorities and we rely on our own intellect, we ignore what Paul is trying to say to this church, which is rise above all of that and be about the things of God, not about the things of people. Because it's the things of people that divide us, not the things of God. The things of God bring us together. Broken relationships between followers of Jesus don't just hurt the people in the church. Broken relationships between followers of Jesus hurt people outside the church. How many times have we seen a church implode and the people that leave the church never return to to a church? A community is completely disrupted when a church splits and separates because they realize they're not really about the things of God. They're about the organizational things of their particular church. And so they're done. Whenever the church implodes because we fail to give grace to each other, our message of grace falls on deaf ears because they don't see us living it out. And instead, the message of grace is everything to the follower of Christ. We can disagree over a lot of things. We disagree over purpose. We can disagree over practice. We often disagree over the gospel. We disagree over interpretation of particular verses. Sometimes we disagree over who God is. We have to get some things right and let the other things go. Do we believe together that God is a good, loving, perfect God? Do we believe that that God is the creator of all things and what he says ought to go? Do we believe that if God says this is good, then we should say that is good and live as if that is good? And if God said this is bad, should we not live as if that is bad? Can we agree on doctrine together? Can we agree on our basic theology? Who is God? We can disagree on a whole bunch of other things, and it really just doesn't matter. We need to make sure we agree on the things that do. How do we do that? I believe the key is staying focused on the prize. The question is, what is your prize today? What are you searching for? What are you looking for? What are you hoping to get? 
If it's comfort, that's only promised to those who are in mourning. It's not promised to those that everything's going peachy with. If your prize is living the good life, there are certainly followers of Jesus that live easier lives than others. But if you're counting on your faith to get you there, that is not the way God works. What is your prize? Is our prize knowing God? Is our prize becoming like Christ? That is the prize we have to stay focused on. Let me finish, let me finish with this. Our strength together as a community. It doesn't lie in our individual strength. Our strengths together in the community. It lies in our relationship with God and it relies on our relationship with other followers of Jesus. You know, if you will look at the overall picture of Paul's letter to the Philippians, you find a man who's in prison, and he's got a f- group of people that are a, a home base caring for him. Today, we have relationships with people that are working around the world, and they need a home base for, to know that we are supporting them, encouraging them, praying for them. They need to know that we're not back here disagreeing over the color of the carpet, but instead we're focused in prayer for their lives, for their ministry, and for the gospel to spread around the world. They need to know that there's a united foundation of people, that their goal are the things of God, not our own little petty disagreements. Those petty disagreements are going to come because you and I are flawed people saved solely by the grace of God, not our ability to not be flawed. But Paul had a group of people that were praying for him, giving to him, and sending people to encourage him. He could not do the things he was doing strictly on our own, nor can anyone in this world do that. We need to do that together. Our strength lies not just our relationship with Christ, but our relationship with other believers. It it just breaks my heart to see so many churches at odds with each other. Denominations at odds with each other. We pick out the things we don't like. Well, they don't even play music in their church. They're not even real Christians. Well, you can be a real Christian and not play music in the church. You can be a real Christian and not be whatever denomination you think is the right denomination. You can be a real Christian and do crazy stuff like we do here. I want you to know that you don't have to do this alone. That the Holy Spirit is active when we're focused on Him. That is one of the promises of those who become believers that the Holy Spirit comes into their life and works within them. Galatians 5, and through 24, the fruit of the Spirit talks about what happens if we as a community together are staying focused on the things of God. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. That's a tough one. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, or discipline. You could call that discipline. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. I'm going to leave you with just this. What is our big transferable principle? And then you can work through how do you apply this to your specific instance or what's going on in your life right now. But when we focus on the things of God and the teachings of Christ together, we not only experience peace together, but we're able to spread the gospel together. Now, Paul is saying all this, remember, to two women who did not have a substantial thing to disagree about. It was substantial to them, 
But in the big scheme of things, really wasn't that substantial of an issue. If Paul thought it was necessary for them to rally around unity, how much more important is it for us to rally around unity together? My prayer for us today is that not only would we experience this peace and this unity together, but that we would be able to live live lives that are focused on the things of God. So even if we may disagree about our favorite color, we can agree on the things of God. Let that be what drives us, not our own personal issues. Pray with me. Father, God, I thank you for the ministry of so many that bring peace in this community, that bring peace in communities around the world. I thank you that we have the grace given to us to know you through Jesus Christ. I thank you for the opportunity for our prize not to be something we have to earn, but our prize is something you have offered us freely through Christ's death on the cross. I pray that as we're all going through different things right now, we're all going through struggles and hardships, disagreements and frustrations. I pray that you would help us to stay focused together on the things that you deem are most important and let our strength be not that we agree on everything, but we've decided that together we will agree in the things that matter, that we will agree in you. We thank you for your love and your grace. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.